from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Mayor Mansouri. Mayor grew up in Iran, England, and the U.S. She left Iran to go to boarding school in England just before the Islamic Revolution. She came to the U.S. after high school to go to university. After university, she developed a thriving acting career. She also uses her voiceover talents for audiobooks, one of which is Saffron Kitchen, where she provides about eight characters. She recently helped in the film Precious, casting the children and directing the children. She is the co-founder of the nonprofit organization Children's Theatre Company. I started the interview by asking Mayor where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in a couple of places, so I have like split identities to Iran, England, and now the U.S. I was equal parts in Iran, England, and U.S. I will not tell you how old I am, <laughs> but basically I was raised in my, my childhood was most somewhat in Iran, and then um, just uh, in the nick of time we got out of Iran to start uh, school in England and sort of escape the revolution. And then um, got into university in, in at UC Irvine in California. I grew up with a culture of interesting mix of Jewish, uh, Muslim, political environment of Iran to a very British boarding school, Christian environment. It was a 24-hour boarding school, so I didn't have my Persian family around uh, in England. And followed by... Um, the United States, which was a kind of uh, melting pot of all of these cultures and a place that I could be all of it and uh, play on all of my little uh, cultural hats. And what was your religious life like growing up? In Iran, in the time of pre-revolution, I grew up as a Baha'i in a family that came from Islam and came from Judaism. So it was really interesting to see that in those days, the Baha'i faith was more openly accepted in Iran. And then after the revolution, of course, I don't know if it's common knowledge now, but the Baha'is were, you know, being the largest non-Islamic minority religion, uh, were singled out. So we were not able to practice or express what we call freedom of conscience, really. Um, the expression of faith for me as a child in the Baha'i community in Iran had a lot to do with not just worship, which might be traditionally seen as an expression of religion, but it was really um, manifested through service, which is how we sort of grew up in, in Baha'i tradition in Iran, that, you know, when you want to um, express your faith and you want to engage in an act of worship, you find a way to be of service to your community. So then when that was quickly put out, we were, um, we were you know, put in boarding school in England. And in England, 
it was very interesting because no longer was I able to really talk about or be a Baha'i. It was in a fully Christian school. An opportunity to express faith was at Christian churches really every Sunday. So basically, we, you know, we, we were able to express our faith, but, you know, my parents were um, very open to me experiencing all different kinds of faith communities. So going to Christian school was as much a, an important part of being a Baha'i as was um, being around a large Baha'i community. So in, in England, it was really about going to church on Sunday and, and, and understanding about other spiritual traditions. So for me, as Baha'is, you know, being brought up in that culture, it was very important to, to be able to um, see the expression of sacred word in other, in other faith traditions. Did you leave Iran just before the revolution or just after the revolution? I left just after the revolution, or I should say my last summer was the night of the martial law that um, basically quarantined people, to the, quarantined people to their homes. So really the, the last summer, we used to go back to Iran summer holidays while I was in boarding school, and then the last summer I was there was sort of the, the uh, revolution summer. And you said you really had not experienced any persecution personally as a Baha'i pre-revolution? Well, my family, you know, were held in various very dangerous circumstances as, as Baha'is and were imprisoned as Baha'is. Um, but my own parents had been very vigilant about reading the Baha'i writings, and, and there's so much language in the Baha'i writings about not creating large sort of ghettos of, ba- of Baha'i faith, but really going out in the world and learning about other cultures and being of service to other communities. So we got out both because my parents sensed uh, definite something eminent and also because they wanted us to experience other cultures and languages. So while my cousins and others were hoping the revolution would blow over in a couple of months, um, and many of them ended up um, really persecuted, and, and a couple of my family members uh, ended up, after imprisonment, uh, passing away shortly after. It was very clear that some of these decisions were just kind of life-changing, and you, you weren't sure what you were going to go into next. Now, I know my father was never happy about leaving Iran and never thought that this, this revolution would last. And most Iranians kind of lived out of a suitcase abroad in England, thinking that at any moment the revolution would blow over. So we were, we were fortunate, but my, some of my family members did end up staying there. What was your first reaction to arriving in England? You know, we are socialized in Iran to worship Europe, which is, I think, what this government wants to work against. So for me, Europe was this big fantasy place with blonde children and Cinderella. So I think it was actually uh, um, exciting for, for quite a while in terms of, uh, in some ways, we realized how much there was the self-hatred in the culture of everybody dyeing their hair blonde and everybody trying to sound like they were not Iranian or Middle Eastern. This was before the revolution. So for me, England was the fantasy world of white people and blonde people. It was really ultimately um, a wonderful experience to learn a second language. Of course, I you know, wanted to sound English and be English, and my parents wanted an opportunity for me to learn other languages. So it was terrifying to be uh, completely immersed in a new language and terrifying to be completely immersed in a new culture. Um, I think what was um, a sense of security is in those first 
five years, we were really, my mother always says that the hard drive of the computer is formed in, the, uh, in a child in the first five years. So I think we had a real sense of who we were and, and why we were there. And so I, I don't think I felt um, the, the certain insecurities that might come with that such a huge transplant. And it was five of us. We had my five brothers and sisters. Um, we went to girls. They went to boys. But I think it was, you know, to quickly learn the language. And what was amazing about really England in contrast to Iran was the opportunity to see how, in fact, similar we were. And uh, there is such a love of literature and language in the Persian tradition. And there is such a love of language and such a command of language in the British tradition. So even though I had switched languages, I was suddenly immersed in Shakespeare and and um, all the great of British and Irish playwrights, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't so far apart. You know, in Iranian culture, we might sit around in a circle and for fun uh, in a in a real party setting with young people. At some point, the party will sit around in a circle and exchange poems of Rumi and and Hafez. And in English culture, um, the best thing you could do with your weekend was to try to catch a couple of matinee performances at the Royal Shakespeare Fest, uh, Royal Shakespeare Theater. And so, so that was something I knew instantly. I had found a home for my passion as a young girl, which was to find a way to stage the, the written word. Now, did your parents stay behind it, or they did come to England as well? Uh, well, no, they sent us to boarding school, so they stayed behind. But my mom made the point of coming and visiting on, on major holidays, and then we would be brought out to Iran on summer holidays. So probably every three to six months we saw our parents, and uh, the rest of the time it was full immersion. And and what was great about this particular boarding school, and I think many schools in England, is that it was thankfully not just British people, Caucasian British white people. It was really kids from Nigeria and Tanzania and all over um, Europe, of course, but really a great uh, representation of, of the global community my parents wished that they could find for me. And it was in a little town called Worcester, which was a very, um, you know, not hip happening place, but it had a, a very fine school that, uh, where the boarding school students were all international students. So we, I think in the end, we were really given that opportunity to expose ourselves to language and culture and, and different faith traditions, uh, even though it was a fully British um, sort of society. Now, you said you were still in boarding school when the revolution occurred. Did that in any way impact your parents' financial situation? Yes. I mean, it was really the the biggest decision of their life that both impacted positively and really that, that negatively. But And it was really this decision that if this, if this Iran is going to stay the way it is, in reality, it was to know to move our um, our, our assets and family assets to another country in the end, they both had to um, really redefine themselves, their careers, and they were not sure if they would ever be able to really um, afford the lifestyle they had. And I think one of the best aspects of the way um, my parents viewed our upbringing is even though we had some degree of affluence in Iran way before the revolution and any sign of losing that, that affluence, they wanted us to really be connected to this idea that nothing comes easy. So we were very connected to, you know, having chores and having responsibilities. And there was no, there was no knowledge of if there ever would be a livelihood again. My father was in the um, business working with Ilford Films. He imported the, the sensitive paper that you make film paper on, like Kodak paper. And my mother was 
a designer and they had clients uh, in Iran. And so, you know, all this had to be restarted really in abroad and they weren't sure if that was going to be at all possible. And it was really about getting all that they could get out of the country. And, and there was a lot of guilt that came along with that because many people were not as quick and able and capable and resourceful and had friends and family abroad. So I think we had a lot of guilt too that we were able to, you know, have a pretty decent life in England and then in California and now New York. Now, what were the circumstances that had you leaving England? Uh, I think it was really much more, the opportunities were much less visible to my dad as far as business and and, and the climate of the economy in England was always very sour. Uh, I think the climate of the climate was also always very rainy, so he <laughs> never he never thought the weather was going to, you know, he just wasn't about that, the whole uh, environment and culture. And we had a lot more um, family in New, in New York, and so I think they hoped that they could they could get some, some assistance from moving to the United States. Did you do this while you were still in boarding school in England? Yes, just by our last couple of years, retransplanted in the U.S. and examined out of certain courses, managed to put in another year of high school and started university. And where was that? And, um, I went to UC Irvine, and um, my family parents got a house near Los Angeles. It was in the east area, eastern parts of Los, a suburb of Los Angeles called Glendora. Again, not wanting to create large ghettos of Baha'is. They wanted to sort of stay out of where all the other Baha'is were populating, and the Persian Baha'is in particular. And then, um, uh, you know, I went to college to Irvine, so got my own apartment eventually. Yeah. And what did you study? Yeah, I studied and got my degree in theater, an undergraduate and graduate degree in acting and producing at theater administration from UC Irvine, and really didn't know what I was walking into, but I had stumbled upon, I'd applied to many colleges that I really liked, and most of them were on the East Coast, but I stumbled upon this book called Acting Professionally by uh, Dr. Robert Cohen, and I was so impressed and amazed and thought he was a genius, and, and then I stumbled upon an author of a of a theater tradition by Jerzy Gortowski, and I thought he was amazing. And as it happened, both of them uh, were professors and dean of the School of Drama at UC Irvine. With a lot of uh, begging and pushing, I managed to get the, like my foot just in the nick of time in the door of UC Irvine. I hadn't gone through the usual um, year in advance application. I kind of had to go crawling on my hands and knees about a month before the school year started. But I had good grades and, and lots of um, projects and theater works that I'd done growing up in England, and so I kind of made an impression enough to be on a three-month trial period to see if I would be able to audition myself into the drama department. Now, when was your love of theater first born? You know, I never knew there was a theater with a capital T. I didn't know there was a career. I didn't know there was a job. I, no one in my family or in the, especially in the Iranian culture would even um, sort of acknowledge this as a as a track of career or even education. I always had a love of theater. I just didn't know what it was. I was always staging plays and always writing. Um, my mom kept a collection of essays that I didn't think even to write into a play format, but I would look at images on my blankets and on my spreadsheets and on my booklets, anything with an image on it, I would create a story out of and then boss my family and cousins into playing different parts and hand out the roles. And sometimes I wanted to be in it and sometimes I wanted to produce it. So I think I had a little 
professorial spirit from an early age. I do remember in, in early grade school in Iran being given, you know, nice parts to play and not having any fear. And of course, raised in a Baha'i community, we were always encouraged to commit to memory great literary works and, and, and both secular and sacred words. So oftentimes in our annual Baha'i festivals, I, I would be asked to participate with other children to memorize and perform great secular and sacred poetry and other great works. And so I would, I would just step it up you know, extra than my brothers and sisters who couldn't wait to get off stage. <laughs> I'd ham it up, and before the speech was over, I was quite ready for the applause to come raining down. So luckily, my dad, who was in the film business, has uh, filmed it before the camcorder days were fashionable. So we have some evidence of this. And so I think I started to really be encouraged to uh, really enter this whole word, world of literature and, and humanities and not, not until I was in England and I saw live theater did I know that there were people who actually did this for some kind of a living. And Shakespeare became another brand new love. And, 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 and thank God I didn't have to lose that when I went to UC Irvine. In fact, um, my great mentor and, and professor Robert Cohen is the head of many of the most world-acclaimed Shakespeare festivals in the country, abroad, in Canada, in England. So I quickly took all the Shakespeare I could I could eat in college and was uh, able to um, immediately get work and get my union card status and enter the um, acting industry before I was graduating. So it was really kind of an amazing moment for me to know that, that I could be accepted into the English language, knowing that I was really from another culture, another language, and kind of a fraud and wasn't the original English girl and all that sort of thing. So... Uh, theater has uh, always been there, and it's really in the family. It's in the blood, but we just didn't cause that because I think the downside of all this is that the Iranian tradition doesn't really uh, encourage the field of acting or the arts, and maybe until recently that there has been such an amazing outpouring of talent from Iran, uh, even under this uh, terrible regime, as well as in the Iranians abroad, from England to United States, the, the art community, the visual arts community, the cinema, of course, even music, you know, Iranian artists are really producing in a prolific way now. So uh, even, uh, of course, we know of actors like my great friend Shohar Dashlu and others who've been in the business for many, many years, but I don't think any of us would say that our tradition, our culture was encouraging of it. I mean, they practically likened acting to prostitution. I think we can take our head out of the sand now and, and sort of own this as, as a true craft, a true contribution to to our humanity, to our community. But it's it's not been something anybody that I could see in the, in the Iranian community being encouraged at all. They, I think everybody kind of hoped I'd be a lawyer or something. <laughs> you have a very American accent now. Yeah, so yeah. I'm wondering if you had a very British accent when you first oh. arrived to the U.S. Before I my American accent, I sounded very much like this, and I could speak to you with a you know completely normal accent from what I knew to be normal, and, and at any point I could turn on a different sort of, you know, different part of England, it could be a bit more north, it could be a bit more south, it could be a bit more cockney, we could all sort of find five mile radius of what we're supposed to sound like, but when I first came to the US it wasn't... Um, it wasn't really easy to book work as some Middle Eastern actress with a British accent. So I quickly discovered that it was much better that I make that available to anyone who needs it, but 
turn on the American and make it easy for everyone to <laughs> assimilate. Actually, for a while, I spelt my first name M-A-I-R-E so that they wouldn't even see that ridiculous H that I don't know who decided to put in the spelling of the English name. I mean, it's not like they wrote or invented my name in, with, British, with, American, with English script. It was written in Farsi. And with that spelling, I definitely was placed in a Middle Eastern or some bizarre ethnicity for a while. When I spelt it differently, people thought I was Irish, and I, I sort of got to show up and audition for Irish roles all of a sudden. And <laughs> I've actually had a very fine resume playing Irish women. Thankfully, I don't have a very distinct color coding, so people can't always figure out what I am. But I, I've been really, I really enjoyed my acting days because I literally paid all the British uh, Mistress Quickly's and all the Shakespeare festivals. Then I played a ton of. Irish women of all robust sizes. And then I somehow managed to get into the Asian theater and into the Asian society theater in New York and played Filipino, which I'm Asian, so hey, God bless them. I've had my plate full of the Arab terrorist wife roles, so that's like my whole film reel is practically playing Arab terrorist wives, although on the bold and the beautiful soap opera, I played a Moroccan French nurse for a while. That was nice just to just kind of break out Middle Eastern concept. But no, accent-wise, yeah, I, I've definitely learned to assimilate whatever is necessary. Nowadays, I'm very blessed, and we all have to thank our mom all the time for this. She always makes us remember. I actually really make, I, I call it a grant from God, but I really make my living from voiceovers and audiobooks, and in fact, being English more often than American which is fun. I have a wonderful book that I got to audio record for Penguin Books called Saffron Kitchen. And I played maybe seven or eight characters, um, most of which were British. A couple of them were from all over the world and, and even, a, even a Persian girl. So that was just a great fun to actually play on all the characters I've seen and experienced in life. But really um, doing voice work and commercials is what allowed me to stay in New York and produce a uh, Nonprofit educational theater, which is the triple threat of never ever making a living. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. So, what did you do after you graduated from college? Well, so it was really fortunate that I got to go right into doing these Shakespeare festivals. But Shakespeare festivals don't pay the bills, so I started to look for opportunities to do just theater in general. And Los Angeles is not a theater town, as you probably know, so. Between doing tons of these episodic roles for you know Law and Order type shows like um, Chicago Hope or NYPD Blue and um, some some stints on these soap operas, I did a couple of feature films with Lisa Kudrow and uh, Phil Hartman and Beverly D'Angelo and just kind of comedic roles, lots of Arabic terrorist wife roles, silly things. And I finally actually had to really sort of reflect on what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I noticed that even regardless of playing the same ethnic roles, funny or serious, I really hadn't bargained for the hurry up and wait that many actors have to do before their next job. And maybe I wasn't competitive enough to get more work, but I wasn't really prepared for the, for the lots of waiting between jobs. And I found myself saying no to a lot of opportunities where I was able to produce or create content because I was worried my agent might call or I might lose the job if I don't stick around town. So I thought that there was something terrible about this idea of wasting your other gifts and your other drives because this one might call. And years go by and you're like, this is not 
necessarily fulfilling all the muscles I have, and maybe we are more than one thing. And we are so compartmentalized, I think, in our culture. Daytime soaps don't do evening soaps, and if you're a commercial actor, you don't do serious films. It's, it gets pretty uh, obscene, I think, sometimes, where, where people don't allow you to take your talents where it can go. A little different in England, if I recall correctly. For me, it was uh, actually, I soon realized anyone who was actually making a contribution into the field of arts, in particular live theater, were people who were creating the content. And so I was looking for a chance to create, regardless of if anybody wanted to buy it or not. Being a very active member of the Baha'i community, I knew there was a need to be of service somehow. So I figured I should, um, you know, I'll do my Shakespeare on the summers, which is when Shakespeare festivals are big, and during the school year, or really after my education, I'll look for opportunities to create theater for young audiences and write theater for young audiences, whether with adult actors or with even child actors, where I realized there was a lack in education was actually for children in the arts. So I thought, well, if I engage, uh, collaborate with adult actors, it'll be in the creation of the content, and if I uh, involve young performers, it'll be in the presenting it to the young audiences. So that's kind of when I started to uh, fool around with the idea. In 1989, I started the Children's Theater Company in Los Angeles with the idea to create content with composers and writers and to produce it with young performers. Now, you mentioned a relationship between service and the Baha'i faith. Can you expound on that? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, that growing up uh, Baha'i, there was no church or physical building to, to sort of act or conduct worship. Baha'is, uh, in the Baha'i writings, it says that really service is an act of worship. So I was uh, very much socialized with this idea that walking the spiritual path was with practical feet. That doesn't take away this um, mystical dimension of praying, reflecting, and transcendence but that there was transcendence if you were performing your work in the spirit of service. So it was a very, um, you know, I, I intrinsically knew that whatever I did with my art, I had to find a way to make it useful and, and of service to a larger community. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that I couldn't create very unique individualistic art form for my own enjoyment, but if I could do that alongside of something that reached and served a broader community, how much luckier and how much more rewarding that would be for me as an artist. So that's for a while I was like, I'll do the soaps and I'll do the Shakespeare festivals if God wants me to do them, but I'll, I'll, I'll look for a way to be of service as well. And that was where I was mostly rewarded because I found that sitting around in a trailer waiting for me to say five lines was not quite what I thought of acting. It was just an immense amount of time spent literally to come on scene for a five-line role and then that was two weeks of work right there. And while the pay was amazing, it was actually not very rewarding. It wasn't enough acting. It wasn't enough literature. It wasn't enough interaction with other actors. So I found that I had to really be honest. Am I interested in fame and my name and getting a resume that looks really cool? Or do I really want to act? Or do I really want to create? Or do I really want to work with other artists? And so despite the lack of money and the lack of uh, accolades that comes with working in a glorified Sunday school, I knew that, that the truth of me was going to be much more rewarding in this other. So slowly, this other children's theater thing started to take a uh, hold of my life. Now, what were the challenges, Mayor, getting the children's theater company off the ground? 
Well, I think that um, I'm one of those people that finds that you should do everything you can to learn about the industry that you're in, but don't overthink it. If you overthink, sometimes I'm not sure if I would have taken, jumped off the cliff. I mean, honestly, uh, my co-founder, Roya, says that, you know, in, in one of our interviews with the New York One News, she said, you know, if we knew what we were getting ourselves into, we may not have started it. I don't think that was true for me, but I think it rings true on some level for me that the challenges that were in front of me was not something I anticipated or prepared for. On some level, it kind of it came gradually so that I could sort of take one challenge at a time. But I think it was very incremental, very educational. I mean, we committed to one thing we knew for sure, that we're entering a culture of service and a culture of learning. And as long as we were entering this industry in this field with a, an attitude of learning and service, the challenges was what you were learning. So from everything from finding out that four-year-olds don't read right away, and you might not want to put four-year-olds and 14-year-olds in the same show, to actually trying to figure out exactly how will you be able to produce and perform without grant writing and not doing a good big fundraiser and no campaign, there was no you know capital campaign there was absolutely no business plan in mind because it was entirely designed on a on a volunteer model and a and a service project on the side and so the challenges were to really put together all of this learning after I did in LA in 89 I really left it in 92 and just kind of uh, let it go until from 92 till 99 there was a chance for me then to come to New York and the reason I came to New York had nothing to do with children's theater or theater and we actually decided to take care of our father and take him out of the um, a nursing home that he was placed in by his uh, new wife, and we wanted to take care of him ourselves since she wasn't able to do so. So that was um, really a trip to New York was all about somehow, you know, being uh, there for my family and hopefully an opportunity to also find a way to get involved with the theater. And so, yeah, so the challenges were really about finding a way to build on what we had and just do it incrementally. In fact, one of the important um, learnings early on, literally 10 years ago, was a model we call asset-based community development. Sounds really boring, but asset-based community development kind of saved our, our lives because it meant that we should build on the assets of our community, on the resources we actually have, and to, to really um, do things in a scaled-to-your-size way. So we're never trying to do more than we have the resources for. And and so we kind of have to take inventory of our assets every season. And even now, 10 years later, we're always taking inventory of what we actually have in place and then working from a strength-based view and not this kind of a needs-based view, which kind of speaks to this idea of victims and, oh, um, our theater company is rescuing little inner-city children from terrible neighborhoods and high risk and all this very sort of deficit-based language instead of strength-based language wasn't ringing true for us because actually what we were feeling as artists is that we were the starving artists that were needing to be fed spiritually starving artists. And actually, it wasn't about rescuing little inner-city children. It was about partnering with inner-city children and any children, in fact, that would want, uh, along with their parents, to see the strengths of their community and bring their resources to this collaborative community development model, less of a theater, in fact, and much more of an integrated village raising the child uh, with this wonderful reward of a performance at the end of that uh, community experience. 
Now, what did you choose for material when you first started this children's theater company? Your questions are so great. I wish I was documenting this in my, my grants, because that's, <laughs> that's what they ask us. Well, the thing what I did know for sure and why I thought there was a need out there was that, you know, not to disparage the great classics, but I just was surprised that people were happy doing the same five, ten musicals like Annie and Guys and Dolls and Beauty and the Beast and Wizard of Oz and all the great classics, Oliver Twist. I was surprised that people could just be happy, artists, producers, directors, let alone, you know, anyone else would be happy to just keep producing the same ten or so musicals. At the same time, I was very much coming from Iran, knowing my own history uh, and why I'd left Iran and why my family left Iran, why so many people sacrificed. This notion of diversity to me it was very a, a real strong voice in my idea of what can theater do to address diversity and not just race and class and ethnicity, but also even religious tolerance. And this is all very taboo subjects. Nobody wants to talk about it, let alone do theater about it. And I think to some extent, any kind of theater that has a propaganda of social change or ethical social studies is not something you typically see, and we certainly don't want to be sermonizing any of that. So it was a, on the one hand, I was surprised that, you know, you would, we put our teenage children in the wonderful musical Grease, and I would love to play the character Rizzo, who's just, you know, on the edge. But really, when you're thinking about it, Grease is about joining a gang, loss of innocence, dropping out of high school, smoking cigarettes, teenage pregnancy. I mean, I, again, I'm not trying to put down a wonderful musical that I love and have great friends on Broadway who produce it and direct it and are on it. But I wasn't sure if this is what you want the formative years of your teenager's life to be influenced by. And I was kind of, you know, maybe I'm like this extremist Iranian, but I also was not much more impressed with the idea of something more benign looking like guys and dolls. I mean, it's a swell musical from the 50s, and it's so innocent and sweet, and everybody's in love, but, you know, it's about prostitute gamblers. <laughs> and it's, again, I don't know if I want to see my 12-year-old in fishnet stockings and cleavage bound. And so I thought, what, what is it that we're doing in our school, junior high, high school years, and what are we putting into their mind that we know is going to be coming, you know, we've got to put something in their brain for something to come out. And why are we surprised that there is this premature maturation in, in children and youth and they're overexposed to this concept of sex, but not overexposed to geography or world issues or global issues? You know, how can we make it as compelling, as fun, as irreverent even, as challenging to address topics that were socially and ethically and globally relevant and even developmentally relevant. So we decided to really search. And at first we were keen on doing and adapting um, famous literature, but very few, that of anyone who addressed social issues. Like Dr. Seuss has a wonderful storybook called The Lorax. And so we adapted that into a, uh, a student production, a musical production. The Lorax is about the environment and ecology and the dark side of free enterprise and chopping down trees to make more money. And then we found Yertle the Turtle, which was about human rights. And we could do something that was funny and didn't take itself too seriously, but at the same time elevated the discussion, both among children and even among adults, to be more than about, you know, what other typical musicals were about. And, you know, keeping the literature at a high level, we started to write these musicals with ourselves in mind, that we would want to hear these songs, we would want to play these songs. And the reason for that was a couple of good strategic reasons um, in terms of 
audience development, but also because when you kids were exposed to very sophisticated works, very advanced music works, even watching a, a movie with a score would be much more um, uh, sophisticated than, than what they might be seeing in maybe a daytime children's television show. And, you know, I think some of these daytime TV shows that I love, like Sesame Street and Reading Rainbow, they are literacy-based work, so they have to kind of water it down to different age levels. But we knew there was a reason why kids at, as young as seven are buying high school musical, and they're buying these sophisticated scores because on a music level, on a literary level, they were interested in more. And for some reason, you know, either they were getting these very musicals written by grown-ups for grown-ups, or they were getting... Um, works that are exposed to works on like wonderful PBS that's very much about literacy, not necessarily about the kind of things that you know the kind of projects they would want to perform in as as actors or as or their backyard or schoolyard productions. So for some reason, between Shakespeare and the musicals, there was not a lot of other stuff, and that combined with this whole asset-based community model, which is why are we not taking inventory of the assets of our community? And one of the biggest assets was out of work musicians and composers who would, for very nominal fee, be willing to write brand new material that tied into their social studies and tied, tied into their developmental stages. So we started with, you know, existing published work, and then we started to find American history uh, right under our own nose. You know, uh, just uh, last season in Children's Theater of New York, we have a brand new musical called Henry Box Brown. And again, I'm a tourist to this country. I wasn't raised here. I didn't go to school here, so the history of this country is always always interesting and new, and I'm always looking for to learn more, and I bumped into the story of this Virginia slave in the 1850s who put himself in a box to ship himself to a free state, and I looked through the entire canon of American musical theater and found one opera, Porgy and Bess, one kind of caricaturized musical called Pearly, and most recently Color Purple and maybe Caroline or Change. But really, other than Ain't Misbehavin' and Smokey Joe's Cafe, I mean, and none, none of those speak to black history. None of them speak to the history of slavery. And there is no musical, really, that addresses any of those. Since, you know, there's so much in the history of black culture and music. It's amazing that this genre of theater doesn't address these particular historic topics. Certainly, there are great playwrights like August Wilson who have plays about that, that speak to slavery and history. But there has been no musicals that address it. And I thought, how strange that black children, Hispanic children, or any children would be memorizing music musicals about miserable French people, I jokingly told the New York Times. You know, they'll do Les Miserables. But nobody's singing about the triumph of the human spirit coming from that uh, terrible aspect of American history where white and black were the champions of justice and champions of human rights. So as, a, as an Iranian Baha'i coming from Iran and with that background, I thought it was silly to not look at historical events right here in the American student's own world. I wasn't going to give them Iranian history or Baha'i history, but why not look at their own history in order to make the point that we can still celebrate the human spirit and, and diversity and, and justice and human rights and our essential oneness by looking at, at, at our own American history. So we took this wonderful story of Henry Box Brown and with Frank Sanchez and Eric Dozier and Michael Harley and Kim Harley and people that were great contributors to the church community and the gospel tradition, as well as many different backgrounds, came together with some consultation with some great historians. 
we were able to write a one-act, 40-, 50-minute musical that captured this man's life. And I tell you, the audiences would amen and talk back and cry and weep and laugh. And these were, you know, junior youth and teenagers doing this musical, Henry Box Brown. And when we produced these CDs for them, because the way we, we do the, the musicals is once we write it, we invite our Broadway colleagues. And, you know, we like to say that the assets and the asset-based model, the assets of New York, includes this incredible community of Broadway singers who maybe don't have an opportunity to serve the underserved communities actively. So a wonderful way for them to help us is to do these recordings of our music on a cast album that actually becomes the tutorial CD that the kids take home. Every single kid has the CD and they hear a wonderful score and gorgeous voices and just a, as professional a quality as we can get with a limited budget, but that, that we can compete with High School Musical and all these other great shows, but really tie it back into their social studies and their ethical and moral studies. So that was just one of our recent musicals. We have others like the story of Roger Williams defending the rights of Native Americans and other character-based, virtue-based musicals as well. But a lot of times we're looking at our own history and and turning into musicals. So the content has evolved from looking at published works to looking at true stories to creating fictitious characters and still telling something that I think that we want our children to be about. I mean, we like to actually say that children's theater is theater by children for grown-ups and that we really want to foster in the children the belief that they are the voices of positive change and they are the agents of healing in the world, which we sincerely believe and see it every night that they perform and how the audience is transformed. So really giving them the content and then letting them interpret it on stage is the most transforming experience for us as grown-ups. So, Mayor, how would you say the Children's Theater Company has evolved over the years? I think that the evolution of the company has just to be true to the mission and really staying true to the mission has helped us find and grow as well. I mean, uh, the practical and the logistical has been that, you know, a lot of times that people would tell us, oh, you're going to outgrow the space. You're going to have to get a bigger, bigger space. And we always had this vision that it wasn't about growing an empire at one location, but to give every child an opportunity to participate in a backyard production. We always called it a backyard, a schoolyard, a churchyard production. So one of the great evolutions of children's theater has been to be able to replicate our model in such a way that, create our model in such a way that anyone could replicate it. And this came from actually some of the community development guidance that Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i writings encourage us to, to engage with, which is to find a way to be systematic in the way you serve and find a way to be outward-looking in the way you serve. None of our kids are behind in public schools and residencies all over the country that are using our materials come from all different communities and faiths, and all of our teaching artists are also from different faith communities, but the encouragement was to be systematic. So when we wrote these materials, we always figured what would happen if mayor had to move? Can this continue without mayor? What would happen if mayor had to move? Can mayor do this somewhere else without New York City? And, and can you share it with anyone, an aerobic instructor, a science teacher? Can anyone step in, you know, for the most part, and plug and play? So the biggest achievement of our evolution has been to create a starter kit, a plug-and-play model. So from the administrative sign-in sheet to site visits to site reports to attendance logs to evaluation methodologies of teachers, parents, audiences, playbill templates, every flyer template, everything you could want to run your little operations down to the performance kit, which is the script, the songbooks, the vocal score, the instrumental score, the 
orchestral CD, the vocal CD, the audio book, so they could actually, kids could just hear really good actors read the story out loud and give them a great opportunity to rise to a different level of performance. Every single part of our performances, including taking the children to a recording studio at the end of the season, where they could record their own cast album and sing on a CD and have their names published and let other other users see that children as young as four, five, up to 19 have been able to replicate and internalize these rather uh, large and intense topics and, and oftentimes language that would be four or five years ahead of their age group, which we've been told. So that's, I think, the, the largest evolution, to be able to create the material, to share it, and then to be able to have an opportunity to be invited abroad and throughout the United States to actually put the material to use, train teaching artists, put community builders together with artists in their local community, and to be able to give after-school residencies as well as community-based organizations a chance to kind of elevate their material. And, and I think on some level we've been able to address this missing link in education itself, which is what, beyond academics, do we not see that there is a massive need for character and ethical education, and how do you teach that to kids without sounding lectury and, and sort of righteous? And so I think the theater has been a magical uh, model of that, and we've been able to sort of evolve into delivering the moral and ethical component through this kind of collaborative community model. So I think that's evolution. Of course, financially, it was to be able to get grants. We've just been getting grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York State Council on the Arts. So hopefully that will give us um, some recognition to go and really apply for grants more systematically, which is where we really struggle because we've been so busy creating, writing, producing, and helping other communities. We've never been able to come up for air and be able to fund this according to the amount of work we're producing and really have salaried individuals, which, which we don't have yet. So it sort of leads into my next question is, where do you want the Children's Theater Company to go from here? Well, I think, again, the greatest gift is to be able to attract artists to redefining their purpose, to be able to be of service and to continue to write new and fresh material. So we are providing alternative content to be able to to understand the notion of service as being as small, as large as you want it to be, as long as we can all find a voice in this building community and doing theater and using theater as a great uh, vehicle for that. And for me, that is through just continuing to share the material, continuing to produce the material. And financially, we just have to emerge from this volunteer-based model at this point in order to serve the 21 public schools and the many, many communities that want to do our work. We have to be able to grow into a properly funded organization. And right now, it's lots of uh, individual donors, a couple of grants, a couple of, you know, handful of corporate donors, but it's really not Nobody, nobody believes how, how much we do on, on what budget we do it. So we have to really um, be assertive. And it might mean that I have to, you know, rewrite my job description and stop directing, writing, producing for a while, which I dread doing. But I definitely have to make this a priority if we want to be able to serve more communities. It's interesting. Your, your answers always lead to my next question. And that was oh, <laughs> so we're in sync here. What's your day job? Well, this is really a full-time job, but as I mentioned, I've been so fortunate to do voiceovers and audiobooks that I feel like there's a, a real, real, definitely there's a God out there that's giving me the least amount of hours to get just enough funding to support 
my nonprofit work. And of course, a little stipend from this, a little stipend from that. I still cast some films. We have actually a wonderful film that's now Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey producing called Precious. And I was able to help cast the role of the children and then direct the children. Very rarely do I make fun money off of those projects, but in the other uh, casting and, and coaching opportunities that I've been given, I've been able to do that. I, I'm, I serve on um, a panel of teaching artists and how to create theater in school, so I get a lot of guest lecture fees that way. But it's not a full-time day job with these other gigs, so I can really run this this animal that doesn't seem to <laughs> want to stay in its cage. It's kind of monster growth. <laughs> well, Mayor, thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I'm so grateful, and I really hope I'm, I get to be uh, another voice out there who encourages artists, especially of traditions and cultures that may not have the courage to follow through with their passion to, to find a way to serve. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mayor Mansouri, co-founder of the Children's Theater Company. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
children in Bombay. As a black man and a white man play baseball in L.A. While the yellow man in Bangkok sips tea beneath the fan. A red man sells his pots and wares in the Yucatan. They may look different on the outside. Speak many languages and seem so far apart. But take a good look on the inside. The design is all the same. Starting with each beating heart. We're really just
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.